I think it's worth saying for any of you who are, you know, you're an entrepreneur, you have an online community, you're putting stuff out into the world. The world will tell you, oh, you've got to keep adding fans, adding fans, build community, add to your list. Do It's not true. You don't want any fans. You don't want any number. You don't want anybody up in the mix. You want people that are like, yeah, I get, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Like, this is my jam. And I don't have to agree with you on everything, but like there are things inside of what you're saying that like I dig. Because if you add the wrong kind of people to the mix, that's when you're just, you're asking for some kind of war, which essentially happened like 10 days later. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. have been wanting to do this episode and also kind of hesitating to do this episode for years. Uh, no, weeks. We have officially this month in February celebrated five years. I don't know why I'm like feeling all bleh, but it's okay. We're going we're gonna to talk through it. This is five years since my book, Girl, Wash Your Face, came out into the world. And with other books, like when I was a younger author, when I was newer in my career as an author, I would always celebrate book birthdays, which was the anniversary of the day your book came out. And creating anything takes so much effort and heart and passion and tenacity that you want to commemorate that these things have happened. So when I you know, had my first novel, the first several years I would celebrate. And I did that honestly with every book until Girl, Wash Your Face because I didn't do that with Girl, Wash Your Face for the same reason that I have put off recording this episode, which was that that book was such a world changer. And I don't mean like, oh, it changed the world, but I mean it changed my world in so many ways. And it was like a snowball or an avalanche, like something that started to pick up speed and more speed and more speed until it ran away with itself and with me. And yeah, it was a lot, you guys. It was a lot. I, I stopped keeping track of how many copies that book has sold, but it's millions and millions and millions. And it's in over 100 countries. It's been translated into other languages. It just, you know, I know it's the kind of thing you could look at and think, oh, that's something to aspire to. But honestly, I never, ever aspired to have a book do what that book did. I just wanted 
to be an author, and I had a dream of being a New York Times bestseller, but it truly never even occurred to me that I would be a number one New York Times bestseller or that I would stay on that list for over a year. Just all of it was so much. And as weird as it is to talk about those things, I feel like five years is a big deal. So I thought it would be cool to do an episode about the book and also about what are the parts of it that I still really identify with and really believe in and what are the parts of it that having written it six years ago now, came out five years ago, wrote it six years ago, over six years ago, that my perspective has shifted or changed or I wouldn't necessarily say the same things today that I did back then. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to assume that most of you are here, whether you're watching this on YouTube or listening to it on the podcast, because of that book. I would say 99.9% of my audience came to me at one time or another because of the book, Girl, Wash Your Face. So that's what today is about. And if you are a reader of that book, I guess this is a little bit of a book club. And I really appreciate that you read it, however you read it. You know, you borrowed a copy from your friend or you got one from the library or you bought it or you found it in one of those little neighborhood book exchange boxes or whatever. But um, I'm just, I'm grateful to have you as a reader. And that's what we're going to talk about. And I kept hesitating so much that my team put together some questions for me so that I would stop putting off this podcast. So I'm just going to use their notes their suggestions as a guidepost. And to be honest, I didn't really read through these. I just looked at them and I was like, yep, I could do a podcast based on that idea. And uh, here we are. So that's what we're going to do. Okay. Discuss how the book has impacted your life and the lives of readers. I guess that's, I mean, that's, I, I started off by saying that the book completely changed my life in really good and amazing ways. And also in ways I didn't expect and were really hard. So if you're not familiar with the story of how that book came to be in the world, I was a novelist. I had written fiction and someday I will write fiction again. But I started as a novelist and I was on a trip, uh, like I was doing a, a trip with a nonprofit organization in Ethiopia. And I was on that trip with some other influencers in the space. And the reason we were on that trip was to learn about the work that this Ethiopian nonprofit was doing. It was really cool. And on that trip, I met another author who writes nonfiction and very successfully writes nonfiction. And so her name is Jen Hatmaker. And Jen asked me one day what I was going to write next. And I had this really crazy idea at the time, and it still is, a, I think, a really good one uh, for a fiction book about sort of superheroes. And I started, I was so excited and so passionate, and I was like, oh, and then they're going to do this, and then they're going to do this. And she was like, oh, my God, no, 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 that, what are you talking about? You should write a book for women. And I had had a blog at that point for 
forever. So I had been writing for my audience in a nonfiction style for years. So it wasn't that outlandish. She was like, no, you should write a book for women. She's like, here, tell me if you could say anything to women, if you could have them know one thing, what would you want them to know? And I'd never been asked that question before. And I never really thought about it before. But my answer came from my being. Like it came from my soul. It just I was like, and it like I just started verbally processing something I guess I had been internally processing for a long time. And I was like, I just, I wish that women knew how powerful they were. I wish women knew how strong they were. I wish that they knew that they can take ownership of their life. And I just started saying all this stuff. Yes, life is hard, but like, girl, you are strong. Girl, you are a warrior. Get up off the floor. Girl, stop crying. Like I just started saying all these things. And I was like, girl, like you can do this. Like, girl, stand up and go again. And Jen said, girl, wash your face. And I was like, exactly. And it was just this moment. You have these moments in time where it was like a lightning bolt hit my body. And I was like, yeah, that's that's the book. That's what I'm going to write about. And I wrote the first chapter of that book on the plane ride home from Ethiopia. And It's also why if you read the book, the book is dedicated to Jen because she was the one who prompted me. And I told that story a million times at Rise Conferences over the years because I love for all the the negative stories we have about women and women who are in positions of power and women who are leaders and how they sort of don't take care of each other and stab each other in the back. I would not have even thought about writing nonfiction if she hadn't pulled it out of me that day. And I think it's such a beautiful story because essentially I was in a completely different category and she was like, hey, come over to my yard, come over to my house, like come over to my category, work in this category, which is just so beautiful and so rare. So I love that story and that's why I dedicated the book to her. But I wrote the first chapter of that book and felt like it was something interesting and felt like it was something I had never read before. Because I think at the risk of sounding like such a douche lord right now, it's pretty common now to read nonfiction books where women are talking about postpartum depression, back fat, diarrhea, the hair growing out of the mole on your butt, talking about their sex life, talking about being a bad mom, talking about all these things. That's more common now in the last five years. It wasn't then. And the reason I know it wasn't then is because when we sent, I think I wrote three chapters and then an outline, my agent sent it to different publishers. People were like, what is this? I don't get it. I mean, the opening line of the book is I peed my pants last week. And that was the opening line that I'd sent to all these people. Publishers did not get it. Some people outright thought it was gross. They were like, this is not a thing. I knew when I wrote the first chapter, I just like felt different. It felt special. And when we first started getting responses from publisher, people were like passing, passing, passing. And not just like unknowns, but my actual publishers that I had already published books with who were big publishers passed on that book. So I had a big publisher who had first right of refusal on my next nonfiction, meaning you have to send it to them. And if they want it, they can have it. And they passed on Girl, Wash Your Face. It's so 
hilarious because after it came out, of course, they reached out and they were like, why didn't we see this? Why? And we were like, here's the email where you said you didn't want it, like that you didn't get it and you didn't want it. And I felt like it was something cool. But even, even then, I didn't know if I would get a publisher for it. I had had a little bit of success as an author, but obviously nothing like what it is now. And there were only two publishers who liked it, but it was the first time ever that I had had two separate entities offer for a book. So that felt very cool. And when you get an offer like that, you have meetings with both of them. You kind of see what their perspective is on it. So I ended up going with a publisher who was incredible. His name was Brian. And um, he saw it and he got it and he believed in it and he believed in the work. And um, yeah, so we started out making the book. I wrote it and then I turned it in. And I think I've told this story, but this is kind of an interesting thing about the book. Just to be totally real, I didn't write a faith-based book at all. That was never my intention. That is very much what the book would become in a lot of ways. It would be this, it's a huge book in the Christian space. And a lot of Christian celebrities and other Christian authors and preachers and they loved it and they supported it. It was never my intention. And I'm so grateful for the support, but I never, ever saw myself as a Christian author. At the time, I was an author who had been raised inside of Christianity. And I talked about that a lot. And I shared my stories. I talked about church. I talked about God. I talked about lessons. And I didn't really understand that I think in a lot of ways the reason that the publisher wanted the book was because they wanted to publish it as a Christian title. And when you get close to the release of something, um, you choose like three categories for it to be listed in. And I think the publisher, the the highest category was like Christian nonfiction or Christian self-help or something. And I was so freaked out because I was like, oh, I will, this is a terrible idea because I can't be a poster child for that. I, I, I'm not going to do that well. I'm for sure going to fail at this. Like, this is just not the route that I want to go. More on that in a minute. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Earn on things like gas, groceries, and even that midday latte. And to top it off, there are no fees, period. Yep, 
That means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. I wrote the book. I turned it in. And the first moment I knew, like, uh uh-oh, this is a little maybe not the right spot for me, I got edits back on the book, my first round edits, and they basically found issue or wanted to remove or change anything that didn't sort of fit into a very conservative narrative. And very specifically, there is a chapter in the book, chapter 19, where I told the story of my two best friends who are women who got married to each other. And I mean, I wrote this in 2016, but still it's 2016. It's not 1916. Um, And they were just like, you can't put that in a book. You cannot talk about gay marriage in a book. You cannot talk about homosexuality. I referenced my friends who both worked for a Christian church at the time. And uh, the church was horrible to them and did really awful things when they found out that they were together. And I talked about that in the chapter. And they were like, not only, this is not an edit, like we're removing chapter 19 from the book. And I was like, what? Like I, I was so naive and I didn't even know that you could do that. I thought that authors had control of their work and that yeah, you could edit it, but not that you could just remove whole parts of it. So I was so freaked out. And I was like, just let me edit it. Like, just let, let's let's work through this. And we kept going back and forth and back and forth. And I think that, I mean, we must have done six rounds just on chapter 19. And they finally came back and the editor was like, we're, no, like, we're just, we have to remove this. Our readers are not going to be okay with this. And I remember, and I'm positive, you guys, that they would deny this forever. But I remember her telling me I had gone, oh, I'm like, my heart's starting to like pound and like feel weird in my chest. I don't think I've ever said this publicly. But I remember going to a meeting, like they had flown me out and I was going to go meet with the team and talk about the book. It was getting closer to launch. And I remember that my editor picked me up and I remember she said, we're talking about this chapter. And she's just like, you can't say this in the book. She was like, Rachel, you don't understand. You are going to be so famous. You're going to be so famous and you're going to make so much money and people are going to love this and they're going to love you, but not if you talk about gay marriage. And I felt like, I felt like it was just like one of those moments in life where like the devil, I mean, talk about the devil, like standing on your shoulder. I was like, this is so gross. Even saying it right now, my stomach's getting sick because I just thought this is so gross that a person would actually have the balls to say this out loud, especially because you know the chapter is literally about my best friends. It was so nuts. And she's like, you know, the thing that people do. Well, I mean, obviously like we're fine with it, but like you can't publicly like put that out. And I was just like, this is disgusting. So I left that trip feeling really discouraged. And when I got back, I got an email saying, we're removing the chapter. We've talked as a team. There's no way this chapter, even with these edits, can be there. We're removing chapter 19. And I was devastated. 
I went so crazy. I literally was like, I'm going to give back my advance. And they were like, it doesn't matter. Like they own the rights to this book. And I was like, okay, then I'm going to take the entire advance and I'm going to publicly donate it to the Trevor Project. I'm going to do so. I'm going to make such a big stink about this. I'm going to do so much press about how shitty this is. And my agent at the time was like, you are going to destroy any career you have as a writer. Like no one is going to work with you if you publicly go after this publisher. And I was like, I didn't know what to do. And I felt so gross. And I ended up reaching out to Jen again. And I was like, what do I do? Like, you've been in this world a long time. You're the one who encouraged me to write this book. What do I do? And she said, you fight. And I was like, I have fought. Like, they told me I have no choice. Like, you you know, and she was like, you fight harder. You fight harder and you don't take no for an answer. And, you know, I'm such a good girl and I'm such a people pleaser that I, it just didn't occur to me that I could even push back again and just say like, no, this is not going to be a thing. So I didn't even interact with my editor anymore. And I went back to Brian, who was the head of everyone. He was everyone's boss. I went back to him and I sent him an email and just said like, I am devastated by this. And I was very intentional, by the way, of putting it in email. Because I was like, I am writing all of this out in email so that if need be, you know, this could be published in a newspaper (laughs) But I was just like, I'm devastated by this. And the fact that you're using censorship to, to, you know, push forth a narrative. If we just for a second want to talk about Christianity, the foundation of that faith is love thy neighbor, not let's ignore whole parts of our population that don't identify the same way that we do. Just all of it was like, ugh. So I've sent this long email and God bless him. He fought to keep the chapter in. And chapter 19 is in Girl, Wash Your Face. And it's also, I have a, a, a 19 tattooed on my wrist. And I went and got that tattoo with my girlfriends, with Sammy and Beans. We all have 19 tattooed somewhere on our body, which is a reminder to stand up for what you believe in. And when you find yourself in those big situations, I had never been in a situation like that before. I'd never had such a big opportunity. I'd never had someone give me so much money for something. Like I felt really inferior and not able to advocate for myself. And uh, it was a huge life lesson for me. And probably the bigger life lesson is not my willingness to stand up for myself in the moment. The bigger life lesson is don't get that far down the road with partners that you don't really understand what their intentions are. I sort of assumed, hey, if you're buying a book from me, you know me, you know I'm outspoken, you know I'm liberal, you know I'm accepting, I'm non-judgmental, like everybody's welcome here. That's all part of the picture of me as a brand. And I assumed that if they were gonna do a book with me that they were cool with all of that. And I think it was sort of like, well, let us just shape you into what we think will be palatable. So the book came out and as much as it wasn't my intention, it definitely was sold into a lot of bookstores as a Christian title, which I want to be really clear. There's nothing wrong with being a Christian author, with having a Christian title with doing Christian work. The problem is that if you don't identify as that, 
it's like false advertising. It's going to upset your audience because people are already, when you create something, people are not ever going to see the creation as it is. They're going to see it through the lens that they are. I say this a lot, like if you read Girl, Wash Your Face as a new mom and you really identified with the new mom stuff in there, then you identify me as like your mom friend. If you read Girl, Stop Apologizing, which was all about work and goals and entrepreneurship, and that's sort of how you came into my ecosphere, then you think of me as like, oh yeah, she's an entrepreneur like I am and that's what I'm here to learn from her. And then you potentially might get annoyed if you're here to talk about business and I'm talking about being a mom and vice versa. If you're a stay-at-home mom and I'm talking about, you know, my 10 best tips for, you know, that side hustle, like that might bug you because you're like, wait, I thought this was what you were going to do. And I think a lot of people can be really successful just kind of doing one thing, but it's never going to be, I just would get bored with that. As a writer, if I'm only ever writing about one thing, I just feel like I would get bored with it and you for sure as a reader would get bored with it. I think in a lot of ways, that community really was incredible, but then I feel like it's probable that if you were more conservative, you know, and you started following me, I probably disappointed you real fast because Gosh, I remember, oh, I will never forget. I um the book was promoted by Candace Cameron. And I remember thinking, because this is a while ago, and I didn't really know her career, and I didn't really know how conservative she was. In my head, I was like, oh, DJ Tanner promoted my book. Now remember this five years ago, guys. So I'm like, wow, DJ Tanner promoted my book. That's amazing. And she had posted it on social and she was like, you have to get this. It's so great, blah, blah, blah. And I remember I added like 250,000 followers on Instagram overnight. It was insane. And I was like, holy crap, like DJ Tanner, like this is amazing. This is going to be epic. Not understanding I had no idea what her brand was. I had no idea how conservative she is and therefore how conservative her fans are. And so it never occurred to me like, oh, dang, the wrong kind of audience has just joined this community. Not that they are wrong or bad people, but if they are expecting one thing from me and then get something else completely, it's going to go awry. I think it's worth saying for any of you who are, you know, you're an entrepreneur, you have an online community, you're putting stuff out into the world, the world will tell you, oh, you've got to keep adding fans, adding fans, build community, add to your list. Do It's not true. You don't want any fans. You don't want any number. You don't want anybody up in the mix. You want people that are like, yeah, I get, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Like, this is my jam. And I don't have to agree with you on everything, but like there are things inside of what you're saying that like I dig. Because if you add the wrong kind of people to the mix, that's when you're just, you're asking for some kind of war, which essentially happened like 10 days later. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. 
And I think if you're a parent like me, you understand how important it is to have a kitchen available to you when you have four kids, which is why Airbnb is always the place that I head to just make the vacation easier. And I have always used Airbnb as a place to stay, whether it was for work or family or a girl's weekend. But more and more, my friends are using Airbnb in a totally different way as a business, as a way to invest in property and earn money for it. While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some extra money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker has been a trusted name in oatmeal for over 145 years, which means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, or ballpoint pens. Quaker has something for everyone, whether it's old-fashioned or quick oats that are good for cooking or baking. And while a ton of things have changed, the good stuff remains the same. Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org. So imagine I get all these new fans, unbeknownst to me, extremely conservative fans, and literally like a week and a half later, I'm sitting on my patio, and I had, it was right when wine started to be inside of cans. And I'd been at the grocery store. I think it was like H-E-B. And I saw this like Pinot Grigio in a can. It was like really pretty. And I was like, oh, I want to try this wine in a can. (laughs) This sounds so stupid, but you guys know what I'm talking about. This is like pre-White Claw. So it wasn't as popular to see alcohol that wasn't beer in a can. Anyway, I'm sitting on my patio. It's a warm day. I try this wine in a can, which it just, you know, whatever. And it was pretty, and I took a picture. I think I it was a selfie or something. It was just like me with a can of wine. And I said, like, cheers, y'all have a good weekend. Something simple like that. Oh, I had no idea. I had no idea. I, I broke the internet by having a can of wine in a photo. Because all of those conservative fans that had just joined this destroyed the comment section, just murder, like throwing scriptures at me. You are a sinner. You are a false prophet. A, you know, a godly woman is clean. Like a godly woman would never let alcohol touch her lips. I was like, yo, what was Jesus's first miracle? But okay. 
the, it was so wild. I didn't, I mean, I'm Southern. So we, I mean, Southern being raised in a Christian, my family come up out of Oklahoma and Arkansas. I promise you, we, we like it, some alcohol. Um, yeah, it was wild. I never, I, they were like, how dare you promote drinking as a, it was, people were so upset and I can look at it now and laugh. Cause I'm like, this is bonkers. You don't even know me. But at the time, I, all of it was new. The attention was new. The followers were new. People believing that I was like this, you know, an example, like all of that stuff was new to me. So when all these people were like, you are garbage, how dare you have wine? I was devastated. I felt like I had failed. I felt like, oh my God, am I a bad person? Is God mad at me? Am I not? It was, it was nuts. Yeah, that was like a little taste of what would come because I can't even tell you. Today I have a million and a half fans on Instagram. And when that book came out, I probably had 100,000. So that's kind of how much it's grown, maybe. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty nuts. I think what's interesting about Girl, Wash Your Face is that it wasn't immediately successful. It's what a lot of people don't know, that it took three months before it hit the New York Times list. It was when it first came out, it sold 12,000 copies, which is amazing. It was the most I'd ever sold. But it wasn't any, you know, the publishers weren't super pumped about, like, everyone was just kind of like, okay, you know, we'll see. But it just, it was word of mouth. It was you guys telling your friends and passing along to your sister and buying a copy, you know, for the people at work. Like, it was the most amazing word of mouth thing. And it took a few months for it to become successful and for me, everything was about making, I just wanted to make the New York Times list. It was such a goal in my head. And I'm not even going to say like, oh, it's such a stupid goal and it doesn't matter because it did. It mattered to me as an author. I think most authors would tell you that's a really big title to get. But I had never thought past hitting that list. I thought you make the list and you're done. So I remember it, it got on the list at maybe like number seven. And then the next week it was at number six. And then it was like up to five. Like every week the publisher would update me on the status. And the higher it got, the more nervous I got, the more uncomfortable I got. I started to really like stress out because the publisher was getting so excited. And I, in my head, I was like, oh, wait, no, 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 no. I didn't plan for this. This is not part of my goal. This is not the vision to get to number one. I just wanted to be able to say New York Times bestseller. In fact, I didn't need any other book ever to make the list because I was like, I got the title. That's all I was going for. But it just kept climbing and climbing and climbing. And every week it would sell more and more copies. And I was like, this is crazy. And then it made number one. And then it just stayed there. It stayed there. It stayed there. And I was just like, the more successful the book is like a very distinct moment in my mind. It was like it hit this point where any success past that point no longer felt exciting. It felt terrifying because the more successful it became, the more people got involved, the more my publisher, like more people were put onto my team at the publisher and then like publicists and, 
you know, everyone's now looking and everyone's like so into the numbers, so into the numbers. They want to know what's it selling? How's it doing? They were all talking about it. And at some point I was like, I don't want to know. You have take me off these emails. I don't want to know where it is on the list. I don't want to know how much it's selling because it, it really made me so nervous because I just felt like before this was about this dream I had. And then it sold enough copies pretty early on that I had paid back my advance. My advance for that book was $125,000. It was the most I had ever been paid for anything ever. And I was like, this is two years salary, three years salary for one thing. It was so much money to me. And I was so like, holy crap, if these people pay me this much money and the book fails, I just... I, I failed them. And so as soon as I had made back that money for the publisher, I was like, I'm good. Like, I've paid you back your money. But it just kept going. And it, it just more and more people were involved. And everyone's calling. And I just, I hated it, guys. I'm not going to lie. I really hated that feeling. And I lived in it for about two years. And I understand. I I think that years ago, if I had heard someone say this, I would be like, screw you. This this is BS. Like to have success and then say that you hate it, like whatever. I cannot explain it until you're in it yourself. It's so overwhelming. It's so overwhelming. And for people, I when I was little, I used to dream like, oh, someday, you know, I'll do something where people will know my name. And when people started to come up to me at the coffee shop or the airport or whatever, so exciting. I thought it was so cool. And then more and more people came up to me and more and more people came up to me. And the interesting thing about that book in particular is because I wrote about a lot of really hard things that people immediately, I mean immediately, they wouldn't even tell me their name. They'd walk up to me in public and say the most awful things you've ever heard. I didn't want to, I remember some of the worst ones and I don't want to say them in case people happen to be listening. But they would tell me their trauma. Their trauma would just fall out of their mouth in the grocery store while I'm holding a toddler, you know, at the airport. Like, and they'd start bawling. And I had no idea how to handle that. I had no idea. And so I would like hold space for people because it felt like the right thing to do. But then you would have a stranger literally processing trauma they had never even talked about with a therapist with me at Starbucks. And I felt such a massive weight of responsibility in that. And I didn't want to let anybody down. And so I just like lived in that. And I was traveling constantly because I was getting booked to speak everywhere, traveling, traveling, traveling. So I would enter people all the time. And then, you know, if I was booked to speak, there would be a VIP line where you could pay or like they'd let people come and like take pictures. And then that would take three hours. Like I had no boundaries. I had no boundaries at all because I didn't know that I was allowed to have boundaries. And I didn't know that I could say to someone, no, you can't have a picture of me right now. In five years since that book came out, I've only said no two times. And I probably should have said no more. But once was coming home on like a red eye. I had spoken all day at a conference 
and then done like two hours of the VIP line. And this woman was in the VIP line. So I'd taken a picture with her at the event. Then when I was in line on the airplane to come home, and again, I had been on all day and she had seen me. So she'd seen me speak and she'd been in line with me. And then I was getting on the airplane and in line for the airplane, she was like, Rage, like, hey, love it. So I'm talking to her. She's like, can I get some more pictures? I didn't really like the angles of earlier. And I was like, yeah, I don't care, whatever. Like we're chatting. I take a bunch of selfies with her. We get on the plane, three hour flight back. I think we got in around midnight. I'm exhausted. Even people who don't know me, anyone looking at me, I look like a zombie. I'm dead on my feet. I stand up and I'm waiting to get off the plane. And this woman pushes her way to the front of the plane and is like, Rachel, the lighting wasn't good in the last, like, can I just get some more pictures? And I looked at her like dead. And I was like, no, I I can't. I can't take any more photos. And she was like, oh, okay. And y'all, that was like four years ago. And I still feel badly about the fucking people pleaser in me who I still, I'm like, I'm haunted. I'm haunted by that. The second time that I ever told people no was I had spoken at a conference. The people at the conference figured out where I was staying. I mean, like 50 people and went and hung out in the lobby of the hotel and um, were drunk, super drunk. And I had gone out to dinner after I had spoken at this conference and came into the lobby. And I remembered like getting out of the car and walking into the lobby and being like, wow, that's, that's a lot of people in this lobby. Like it's going off. Okay. Cause it was like a holiday and it was something random and get inside and the whole lobby screams and realizing that all these people were there for me. And I was so overwhelmed and so exhausted and just like incapable. And again, this has been four years and I still feel badly <laughs> that I didn't take pictures of those people because the people pleaser me, the, there's some small child part of me that says, be a good girl. Don't let anybody be mad at you. It doesn't matter if you want to do this, you know, like this is your job, like go do this thing. And I think that mentality is really, really, really why I burned out so bad in 2019, just like two years of opening veins and like just giving, 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 giving. And I had dreams for two years. You guys, this is, this is wild. Any of you who are therapists are going to like love this. I had dreams for two years that I was looking at my dead body and crows were just picking my flesh apart. And like all of these crows were like so fat and they were just like getting fat by like eating me one piece at a time. <laughs> So that is part of what happened with, uh, with the success of this book. Coming from such scarcity when it comes to money, like growing up in such food scarcity and financial scarcity in 
you know, if any of you, I know so many of you have been in those situations and maybe some of you are in those situations now where you do not know how you're going to make rent. You don't know where the next meal is coming from. As a little kid, like you maybe have memories of going to the kitchen. There's no food there. And there's like not hope of food going to come there. And, you know, what it felt like to like go to school and like be on the special lunch program. And, you know, you never had the right food for like the class parties, like the other kids would have like cupcakes that they would, or cookies or whatever. And you just like never had, it just, I heard if you've ever been hungry, then you'll never be full. And I used to identify with that so much because I just thought, man, if you could be, if you could have money, if you could just have money, then you'd be safe, right? Then you wouldn't have to worry about your rent. As a little girl, all I had ever wanted was to be able to go into a Target and buy anything I wanted from Target. Because Target was like rich people, right? Like we were at the Goodwill, we were maybe at Walmart, but like if you were at Target, you were doing, you were living high on the hog. That's all I ever wanted was to be able to shop at Target without. I remember in second grade, my mom took me to Target to get a back to school outfit. I still remember literally every single part of it because it was such a huge deal to get a one outfit for back to school that it was new that it wasn't a hand-me-down and that it was from target thank you for asking uh it was leggings that were like floral print pink and purple and then a t-shirt that was purple but you flipped the sleeves you guys remember this in the 90s you flipped the sleeves and inside the sleeves were another color so it was a purple shirt but like with the pink cuffs on the sleeves and then socks and um, Keds, remember uh, Keds or like whatever the Target version of like those, just those plain white tennis shoes. And I got pink and purple socks, which was all the rage to wear two socks at once, you know, like pink and purple. And then I got these dangly heart earrings, which I wish I still had because I feel like they would still be fantastic. Yeah, it was never, it was never a goal to like, be this like, oh, I'm going to be a billionaire. I'm going to do... No, I just wanted the financial security to not be afraid. To not be afraid. That was like the goal. Once you pay off your advance for a book deal, you get royalties. So they pay you above and beyond like that 125000 They pay you above and beyond that. And it was six figures as a royalty check. And I just stared at it. And I started sobbing because I remember that I had this immediate thought that I would never have to worry about making payroll again. That was all I thought. I will never have to worry about whether or not I can pay my employees. That, that was it. I had at that point been an entrepreneur for, you know, 15 years. And if any of you are entrepreneurs who have employees, I'm guessing there are times where you're like, ooh, cash flow is real tight. And we don't know if we're going to be able to make payroll. And it, it, it's a sick feeling in your stomach. It's so horrible. And I had worried about that for years, years and years and years. And I saw that check and I thought, I'm never going to have to worry about that again. Because it was such a high number that I thought, I'm golden. Now, if any of you are therapists, 
You also are probably wondering the same thing my therapist was when I told her this story, which was, Rachel, why did you see a check for something you had done and immediately earmark it for other people? That is a fantastic question, y'all. Um, and one that I have spent many years uh, working through and feel like I probably will still spend a lot of time working through. And if I could give you any wisdom on that, if you potentially find yourself in a similar situation, it's, well, I think it's probably people pleaser in a lot of ways. I feel like there was a lot of guilt associated with that kind of success. Like, well, I've done this thing and it's more than any person deserves to have. And so I will just use it for other people, which is, I think, really beautiful and really pure. And I'm proud of being that kind of person. But I also know and can look at the situation over the last five years since the book came out that then the structure of things financially became about me performing. Go write something, go stand on stage, go speak, go do, we're going to do a conference, we're going to do another conference. And then there was this like engine or machine kind of built around that. And I didn't know better. And I'm an achiever and I can figure anything out. So I was like, I'll just, I'll keep going. I'll hustle harder. I'll work harder. I'll drink more caffeine. I'll take on another speaking gig. I'll do all of these things. And so much, I'm really good at making money (laughs) and equally good at uh, not keeping it. Not because I'm spending, not because I'm buying a golden jet or getting yachts or doing crazy things, but because I just, I I thought this is the way it's supposed to be. Like there was a business built around me making money. And because I was really good at doing things that made money, there wasn't a lot of checking to make sure that the business was actually contributing to that. And so anytime that things weren't as good or weren't as successful or whatever, there was never a moment of like, okay, we're going to slow down and we're going to, we're going to be smart about this. We're going to make smart decisions. We're going to make sure. And it was never that it was, we'll add something else to your calendar that will then give us a check that then we can, it just, it was so much freaking pressure. And I think a hundred percent contributed to like everything that came after contributed to like 2020 and what it was like to what do we have six conferences on the books for 2020 that we were unable to do and a company that 100% should have gone bankrupt but again I was like I'll just hustle I'll figure it out I'll I don't know it's been a crazy it's been a crazy ride It has been a crazy ride of what it did for me, for my business, for me as an entrepreneur, for me as a human being. And I know that this is going to sound like BS, but (laughs) 
I really believe all of this happened because there were a lot of lessons that I needed to learn about who I am and what I believe in and where I was ignorant and where I trusted the wrong people and where I needed boundaries. There were so many lessons that I needed to learn that I would not have learned unless it was on the biggest fucking scale. I believe that. I think I sort of need to be punched upside the head by the universe because the guides and God and everyone's like screaming like, hello, hey, 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 sister, hey. And then I'm just like, I know I could do it. I could achieve my way. I could like, you know, do enough that people will love me. And I sort of feel like the only way that I was going to learn what I needed to learn to be the woman I am today is to is to go through it on the biggest scale. Yeah. I have no idea what that might have looked like from the outside to y'all if you were watching. But on the inside, it did not feel good. It didn't. You know, I was um, on a trip for my birthday. I was with two of my best friends and my boyfriend, and we were at dinner, and I asked the group, what was your favorite year of the last 10 years? And it was very interesting what everyone said. But my favorite year of the last 10 years was 2017. 2017 me was so naive, just bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and just didn't know, just dumb as a box of rocks and didn't know what was coming and didn't know how hard it was going to be. And didn't know all the ways it would stretch and push and prod and yeah 2017 was my favorite year just because it was gentle it was peaceful i remember being in a hotel room with sammy one of my best friends who was with me at this dinner table where we were asking this question but sammy and i were in a hotel room in like san francisco and i think we we're doing a meetup or something maybe some of you were there was that a wine bar do you guys remember that remember when we would just do meetups like hey we're gonna be at this wine bar if you guys want to come but we were at a wine bar i think it was san fran and my lit agent called to tell me that you know i'd gotten an offer for girl wash your face and it was one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. and i remember sammy and i shit ourselves we could not believe the offer this is the most money. Like, we're rich forever. And we were like, wine for everyone. Like, we were so pumped. Oh, just the sweet naivete of that. Bless. Yeah, it was wild. All of that therapy session. Thank you. I will send you guys a check for this therapy session. Um, all of that was from one question. And I do want to answer the other question that I really think is interesting. The team sent me like 10, but I think that the other part of this that is very interesting is which pieces of Girl, Wash Your Face do I still believe? I think it's Girl, Stop Apologizing. I write a chapter about, you know, hey, I hope that you guys read this 10 years from now and you're like, none of that sounds like you. Like you're a completely different person. I feel like if I'm doing my life correctly, I will always evolve past work that was, you know, it's five years old, it's six years old from when I wrote it. I'm a, I'm a thousand different people. 
I have changed a thousand times in six years. So there are pieces of Girl Wash Your Face that I really still believe deeply. And there are pieces that I'm like, don't believe that at all. And I want to talk about that next. But I'm aware that I have accidentally done a full hour on one question. So we're going to split this into two parts. And if you're listening to it, jump over to part two and uh, we can we can do that one together next. But uh, yeah, that's what we're going to talk about in the next episode. The Rachel Hollis podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org.